everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, the MLS's back tournament is over, but the MLS is still back regular season is now very much in full swing. I like that name. I haven't heard that one. The MLS is still back regular season. (laughs) It is. It's still back, and we've got a lot of games coming. Yeah, I feel like... In general, it seems like the league has done a really good job of transitioning from the tournament and using the time during MLS's back to formulate a plan that seems so far to be working in home markets to allow the players to continue to play because I think that's what they want, right? They want to keep playing. They they want to feel like it's safe to play and that they can continue to do their job. So, so far, so good. So far, so good. Off the top here, we do want to mention there has been a positive coronavirus test result, a confirmed positive for a player on the Chicago Fire. A first team player was confirmed positive on Friday, August 21st. That player didn't travel to Columbus. That was before the confirmed test is asymptomatic as well. All other players and members of the club have not tested positive since that moment. I say all that to essentially remind everyone that though MLS has done, has taken steps to make this possible, there is still risk involved in playing games in markets. The players and their families and close circles are all in pretty difficult situations right now, and I feel for them, right? I feel for the, the, the challenge associated with trying to live and also perform and not spread coronavirus. But that's something that we're also all dealing with at the same time. So again, that is mentioned at the top of the show just to just to say that we'll be paying close attention to the coronavirus situation as the season you know has started up and continues over the next several months. Well said. I think that's important. And then uh, let's kind of give people a little bit of, of an idea of what MLS Assist is going to look like now that we're back into games, because you and I were pretty pumped about going into MLS's back and doing a show every day that there was a game day, which was, you know, for you and I, I think we had a really good time, Joe. We did. It was fun. But now we understand that that's for for us, it's just not realistic. So we're going to get back into that same rhythm that we were in before where we do a show a week and give you a little bit of variety in how we cover these games. That's right. We want to get into as many different as many of the different interesting things that caught our eyes on the field from the week. That does mean, though, because there are a a rapidly growing number of teams in Major League Soccer and already a lot of teams right now that we haven't watched every game each week. We might go through after recording and and watch some more games just to catch up, but it's not really feasible to go through and see every single moment from every game, which means that we can't really talk about those things in a super educated fashion. So we're going to be a little bit more selective about what we talk about. That does not mean that we hate your team. It doesn't. No. We don't. It's, it's not true. That just means that instead of talking about them on whatever show you're listening to, go ahead and look to next week or maybe the week after just so that we can spread it around. We will get to them. We promise. For me, and I can imagine that you're going to agree with me on this, one of my favorite parts about this show is that we do get to talk about all the teams always. And that always doesn't mean each show. It means we are consciously thinking and putting that into the way that we're formulating what we're watching and what we're really digging into a little bit more to make sure we are spreading the love. That is right. At the beginning of the season, before the midseason break before the MLS's back tournament, I had a note going in my notes app of of the teams that we talked about each week in bold so that we could make sure that we got to everyone. And that note will continue after this <laughs> second restart sort of time that we're in right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Would you call it MLS is back? MLS, MLS is still is back still regular back. season. Yeah. Still back. 
I'm, that's probably not necessarily the brand that Major League Soccer wants to go for, but I think it works, it, it, even though it's a little bit long. I think it works. I like it. Okay. Jordan, we're going to get into the soccer talk now, starting with two teams that we haven't talked about on the show in the last six weeks, maybe. And that's yeah. FC Dallas and Nashville, because those two teams were not able to play in the MLS's back tournament. We wanted to hit off with them. Uh they're our lead hitter, I guess, right? <laughs> Talk about them because we haven't spoke about them yet. And I think it's important to to say that the way that they potentially were training and what they had to restart looks a lot different than what a lot of these other teams did because they had to go through that quarantine period when they were in the bubble. You know, that's a big amount of time where they weren't training together, right? They weren't even probably able to go we don't know what it looks like right you and i weren't in the bubble but i think for the majority of that time they were in their hotel room so imagine trying to stay fit in a hotel room while all the other all other teams are playing soccer games you're just like honestly your fitness is dwindling so i i take that into account when i'm watching these games as well yeah all of these that's that's a great point not just for dallas and nashville but it's a reminder that all of these games and all these things that we're going to talk about need to be taken with a massive grain of salt because it's so early on. This was yeah. the first taste for all these teams, especially Dallas and Nashville, to get back on the field and to play soccer games after returning from Orlando. So everything just needs to be taken with a little grain of salt. Let's not go too far in and assume that whatever we saw this week is going to necessarily be the case one week, two weeks, three weeks, eight weeks from now at the end of the season, whatever that looks like. All of that said, I want to talk about Dallas first, and maybe this is a little bit of a bummer, which which is unfortunate, but they have not scored a goal yet in their three home games, not home games, the three games since this resumed regular season started. So they're struggling to create chances on a major level, and I want to talk a little bit about why that is or why that could be. Which is interesting, right? Because when you and I spoke about Dallas before, this is a team with a lot of promise. And a lot of players that I think we were pretty high on and to see what they were going to do in this 2020 season. So what exactly have you seen that you that interests you so far? I want to set the scene a little bit first, just with some statistics here. So I said they haven't scored any goals in their three games coming back. They've had five shots on target in their first game back against Nashville. That's a pretty that's a decent output attacking wise. Then since that moment, they've had one shot on target in each of their their two remaining games. So that's one shot on target against Nashville and one shot on target in their most recent nil-nil draw with the Houston Dynamo. So they really have struggled to generate consistent scoring opportunities. And a lot of their shots at all are coming from really far away from the goal. So let's let's take a step back here and talk about why. They've spent two games in a 3-4-3 shape with Jesus Ferreira and Michael Barrios as sort of the the inside wingers. And then they also spent one game in a 4-4-2, almost a... On the lineup sheet, it was Hara underneath Andrasic, but it, they were really next to each other for at least sections of that game. The issue with some of those shapes and the issue with those alignments is that there's not really a connecting piece in the puzzle, especially in that 3-4-3. It's often Ferreira, who's still a work in progress dropping in and connecting play. He's often the one responsible for doing exactly that, dropping in from sometimes it's the left side next to Hara or, or next to Andrasic, depending on the moment, or Pepe coming off the bench. But it's Ferreira who will drop in a little deeper and try to connect play. The issue with that is that he's still learning how to be spatially aware in that 360-degree angle area at Mm -hmm. the top of midfield. He doesn't always check his shoulder. He doesn't always check his shoulder at the right time. And once he gets the ball, he tends to be unaware of what's around him or simply just pass the ball laterally instead of making aggressive passes forward behind the back line. That lack of a connective player right now 
has hurt Dallas. Is it for me, I'm thinking about this because I actually saw your tweet earlier in the week where you showed exactly what you're talking about here uh, with that lack of spatial awareness. Is this something where you would if, if you want to play in that system and you do want to have almost a false nine because that's what you're saying he is, right? Yeah, at times there's still a number nine on the field, but that right. does still drop in from the side. Right. So would you add a player in that if if you want that player to be the connected piece like that, do you keep the pressure on on Ferreira and say, OK, you're young, f- you know, f- keep figuring it out. Or do you bring a player in who is almost a midfielder, right, and play them in that spot where he was playing to be that false nine and to come off the line and be that connecting piece? It's an interesting question, and one that I, I think FC Dallas have answered for us a little bit. They brought in an attacking midfielder in Andres Ricarte, signed as that number 10 kind of player who can hopefully plug that gap a little bit. Then maybe you allow Ferreira to be more selective with the moments he drops in. Because when he played, it, this was back in February, I think the beginning of February, for the U.S. against Costa Rica, he played as a number 9 who dropped in. But I think the difference between that role under Berhalter and what he's doing right now a little bit under Lucha Gonzalez is he can be more selective for the United States. He didn't always have to drop in and connect play as that nine. He could pick his moments versus a lot of times with Dallas so far since coming back, it's been him solely responsible for dropping in and connecting play and helping out a midfield and essential midfielders and wingbacks who can't really progress the ball out of that 3-4-3. And just having that player, if if that's how you want to play if, with that connecting piece as uh, one of your two front runners, you, it gives the freedom for those midfielders to then break the back line, almost like a up, back, and through, right? You play into the target player, that player inside, or that false nine drops in, and then can you get a player like Pomichol r- running and breaking the back line, or Barrio, something that he's so good at, right? So that's why it's key for Dallas, right? They use that player as a link to allow the other players, either in their midfield or in their wingers, to then break the back line. And I don't want to put it all on Ferreira or put it all in the yeah. world that he's in. It's it's a lot of slow movement. It's a lot of of not having a combination of runs behind the back line to break in, especially in transition. It's a, It's missing that piece of the puzzle. Also missing quick, purposeful ball movement and circulation in that 3-4-3. Which still, though it's not really been working, I think is a shape that fits Dallas's personnel really well. Another factor here is Paxton Pomacal hasn't been starting. He's still recovering from an injury. And when mm-hmm. he's on the field, Dallas look a lot better. So there's hope right. here. I don't want to paint it like there's not hope, but it's it's been difficult for Dallas to create chances so far. Yeah, there's there's some bright spots in there, right? Yes, and, definite bright spots. And I think one of the things that you and I do is we we're kind of nitpicky right we like get into the nitty-gritty of things and so sometimes it can seem like oh nothing's going right but that's not the case or it's just one one little connective piece like you're talking about now and that could hopefully make a, a, a world of difference and there's plenty of time still to make that difference yeah on to the other side of those of dallas's first two games back and that's nashville they beat dallas one nil then drew with them nil nil and then most recently lost to atlanta united 2-0. I, I want to talk about how Gary Smith's team plays and what we've noticed from them or what things are doing well and maybe not so well since coming back. All right, are we talking offense or defense? Because I feel like structurally defensive-wise, they they have a pretty solid format. They do. You you talk about, Jordan, and you've mentioned it several times on this show over the, you know, the course of our, our somewhat brief history already. You've talked about how when you're starting a team and when you're coming into a season— 
you got to build the defensive side first. You've got to build oh, and yeah. become solidified so that you're not leaking goals like we've seen from expansion teams, especially in the past. Nashville are doing that. They limited Atlanta United to 0.55 expected goals in their most recent match. That's according to Opta. They've had positive defensive performances in pretty much every game so far this season. Well, also, we've talked about Gary Smith and who he is as a coach. Well, that's one of the things that he prides himself on, I I believe, is the structure of his team's defensively. If you look back to the Colorado Rapids team in 2010 when they won MLS Cup, well, defensively, they were a tough team to break down, right? And that's a team under Gary Smith. And so this, this is a coach who knows how important that is and it also shows you how they built their team right you bring in walker zimmerman one of you know for over the last few years one of the most consistently solid center backs not only in his organization but his ability to break up plays and distribute and then in front of him you have dax mccarty and i don't care what people say like i still think dax mccarty is one of the smartest uh, central midfielders, defensive central midfielders in this league. And, and it's why it's allowed him to be so success, so, so successful over long periods of time is because he's always thought faster than other players. And when you do that, especially when you're in this 442 block, this really defensive structure, you can organize because you know your responsibilities and you can start to see movement patterns of the other team and break up those passing lanes. McCarty has such a fun role. Well, I don't know if it would be fun to play, but it's kind of fun to watch defensively when Nashville are pressuring. When they're stepping yeah. a little higher out of that 4-4-2, sometimes their shape will switch a little bit to a 4-1-3-2, leaving McCarty as that one behind a pressing front five behind his, his double pivot partner, which is usually Annabelle Godoy, the two wide midfielders in the front two, or or, or one-one almost at the top sometimes, yeah. with Baji and Mukhtar. But McCarty will be the one responsible for stepping in and staying back a little bit behind those pressing players and either dealing with an opposing number 10 or simply staying in that space and cleaning up the the balls played into that gap all along the middle of the field. He sweeps yeah. up the ball and then he he plays passes forward in transition. He finds teammates quickly and he starts counterattacks. He's very good, I think, at that transition from defense to offense, right? And can do that quickly. You mentioned with passing right there, but it's almost in those moments that you're speaking of, it's almost as if he is a, uh, I don't know if you remember when we played with sweepers and stoppers, (laughs) like that was what we called a center back who was a sweeper who was behind the back line and then a stopper was in front of the back line. It kind of gives it a little stopper feel. 100%. 100%. He's right in front of the back. Well, maybe a little further in front of the back line, but he's sweeping up and stopping mm-hmm. plays. Not the same thing. Mm-hmm. I know those are different positions. He's That was a poor <laughs> choice of words. I liked it, though. <laughs> um, it, it is sort of combined. He's he's in front of the back line, stopping attacks and starting counterattacks quickly. When I was trying to, to figure out how to describe Nashville in as few words as possible, because I like to do that sometimes just as a challenge oh. for brevity, I actually completely cheated. And I, I was reading about Nashville and I read Ben Wright of Broadway sports. He also writes occasionally, no pun intended, for American soccer analysis. He did an excellent job summing up Gary Smith's basic principles. And he said this, these basic principles are win the ball in midfield, play to feet in space, and get to goal quickly. And I think that's such a succinct, well-said summary of how Nashville and a lot of other teams in Major League Soccer want to play. Nashville do the defensive half of that, or the defensive first third of those principles, win the ball in midfield, that's number one. They do that fairly well. The other two parts, or especially the the third part, once they get forward into the attack, playing defeat in space, they can do getting to goal quickly even, they can do sometimes, but it's it's almost what happens after they have the ball in those advanced areas 
or we start to see a bit of a breakdown. Nashville don't always attack and have the best quality chances and, and find those spates and move the ball well in the final third. They don't always do a great job of pulling defenders out and manipulating space on their way to goal. I noticed this especially in the game against Atlanta is I felt like Nashville had chances with the ball in the attacking third, right? At least numbers in good positions um, when they got the ball wide. What I felt like was lacking is you talk about that connector piece with Dallas. It's almost like every time they got the ball wide, it was going to be a cross instead of, okay, can we bring and check almost a, a midfielder to the channel that midfielder checks to the channel where the ball is, say it's on the right side and you can connect in that little half space, which we see so many teams do, right? It's for me and, and maybe this will come right because I did mention what was happening with Nashville, that they didn't get a train as much as other teams that they're almost, you know, you talk about a restart. Well, they really had three restarts as far as fitness go and playing together goes so can they bring somebody into that half space to be the connector and then distribute from there? Because it seems to me that the crossing, even though you have Don Baji, the crosses that they were putting in weren't weren't successful. Yeah, there needs to be. I think they need repetitions in the attack. They need mm. more opportunities to run those fast breaks almost and figure out what the patterns are and where their teammates like to move and to feel out each other in those yeah. moments. You know, does does Mokta want to get on the ball and turn a specific way? Does Baji make a, a run from inside to outside, dragging center backs away and leaving space for the opposite side wide midfielder? I mean, they need to figure out what those rotations look like for them and have more time to execute those in-game. And they're going to have plenty of those chances going forward. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And something that shouldn't be understated because I believe just in, in playing the game, those training patterns are really important because when something goes wrong in training and you feel you can feel out like Baji checks to the ball he lays it off to Mokhtar and then he wants to run through like a little um button hook run well maybe Mokhtar doesn't find it but the more you can get those patterns going in your head and Baji and Mokhtar can have those conversations in training the more it's going to feel more fluid in the game all right I think that's spot on okay Jordan. All right, we we gave some love to those two teams. How about that? Jordan, yes, we did. We gave love to Dallas and Nashville. Now we're going to move chronologically through our takeaways from the weekend, except for maybe a little section at the end if we have time for tactical tidbits. But for our main points of conversation, we're going to move chronologically throughout the week, starting with one quick thing on Thursday. And this is, well, I guess we can talk about it for as long as we want because it is beautiful. <laughs> it is Darlington Nagby's goal from the Crew's 3-0 win against the Chicago Fire. I, Jordan... Go ahead. Just do your thing. It's it's honestly hard to give this goal everything that it deserves because it was just such a thing of beauty. It's not a surprise we talk about this first because I feel like this is going to be one of the best goals that we see all season. 100%. One of the things that's interesting is I feel like a little bit more because we were so immersed in... MLS is back, right? And you got to see Darlington Nagby play time and time again, or at least we did, and we talked about it a lot. I think people are hopefully the ones that didn't already know how good of a player he was are starting to see that a little bit more. This is Darlington Nagby who started at, at a double pivot in this game against Chicago Fire for the Columbus crew. And with a little bit of a rotation towards later in the game, he moved up into the number 10 position to push Pedro Santos wide. So that 
is a completely different position than he's played all year long, right? But not something that he's not used to. He's played the number 10 growing up. He played it in Portland sometimes under Caleb Porter as well. And so he, you could just tell he's just a, a player who, yes, there's certain things that you need out of a, a position as far as like what you're expecting from them and the way that you want to play. But he almost just feels the game more than anything. Like he can understand how to get out of situations so well that allows him to almost play a variety of positions on the field, not just the midfield. The best part about this, Joe, to me, was he saw the pressure coming from behind. Um, I think it was Aliceta who was tracking back and he, as the ball was received by Nagby near the top of the box, right in that zone 14, right? Um, Zardes played the ball into Nagby and he just pops it up to avoid the tackle. And it wasn't as if like he thought, oh, I'll pop it up to volley it, right? He was just like, I got to get out of this tackle. I see the pressure. And after the game, Nagby said, it just kind of fell right. So I thought I'd give it a shot. <laughs> like so nonchalant. <laughs> and it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. So nonchalant describes Darlene to Nagby than any yeah. other two word combination I could possibly think of. <laughs> Very true. Just yeah, the way, it was good. The way he 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 scooped the ball up again. I love how you brought that out. It was to get out of pressure, mm-hmm. and then the ball is in the air, and he he just looks and says, "Okay, I'm gonna hit it." And he brings up his right foot and he slaps it with the second touch. The first touch is the scoop, the little chip up in the air to get the ball up. The second touch is that volley with his right foot, and he hits the ball to the top left corner of the net. I mean, it hits off the left bar. I think actually. Bobby Shuttlesworth has no chance standing in goal. No one, no one has a chance standing in goal to stop that rocket. One of the things that I like, one of the ways I best describe Darlington Nagby is I feel like moments are extended for him. That he, his decision making in moments, he can, he can feel out those moments to allow players to shift or things to set up that then allow him to make the decision. Um, I saw this earlier in the season where he's um, the ball is bouncing in midfield and he like gives a little fake as the ball's bouncing and falling down to him. And when he gives that fake, the defenders shift and a passing lane opens and he just hits it with the outside of his foot in between those two players. That stillness in moments really are, are the difference for him because he can be that playmaker. He can be the decision maker and almost it's almost as if he's in control of it as well. That describes, I think, the best possession players in the world. That mm-hmm. ability to extend moments and give themselves longer, you know, longer amounts of time on the ball to make plays and to give their teammates more time to get into space. We were talking about Dax McCarty earlier, and you you said Jordan how he he kind of thinks ahead of everyone mm-hmm. else and has that really wise way of looking at the game and understanding how the sport works and when he's on the ball especially Darlington Nagby has that too maybe even to the nth degree his ability to get on the ball to to pause and wait for everyone just to move and to settle and for the game to move almost in slow motion when you watch Nagby it looks like the game is moving in slow motion even though I know that it's very much not moving in slow motion even on the third goal too he was a big part of that third goal he gets a secondary assist on it because he is dribbling slow and he lets he lets the players catch up to him he's in space and he lets the players catch up to him with how slow he is dribbling and then once he sees that the play opens 
how he wanted it to, he then changes pace and beats the defender to to open up the pass to Santos, then to Zardes. Uh, that's, that's good soccer. It's good decision-making. Beautiful. Okay, on to our next talking point of the show. That is El Trafico. A 2-0 win for the Galaxy. I want to get in on both sides of this. I want to talk about what the Galaxy did well in this 2-0 win and what LAFC did poorly. Let's start with that second half. Bob Bradley said after this game, three words to start off his, his media access, we were terrible. Um, so what what was wrong with LAFC in this game, Jordan? What did you see from Bob Bradley's team that would produce that comment from him? This is my observation of that game. LAFC loves nothing more than to be in control of the tempo of the game. They could not find the tempo. And for me, it was, yes, I do, I, I do think it was one of the worst games we've ever seen LAFC play, which is weird because it was at home without fans. So you think, okay, well, is it how much of their fans really set their heartbeat, right? I don't know if you saw um, Ander Herrera yesterday after the Champions League final, but mm. he said, football is nothing without fans. And yeah. I thought I think about that when I think about this LAFC team because they are so it's like the culture within Bank of California Stadium it just like li- like pulsates in them and it drives them to be a great team. They are a great team, okay? But I think it is their X factors at some point, at some times. But they were in control of the tempo because I feel like LA Galaxy didn't allow them to high press. Hmm. So if you don't allow them to high press, then they don't win the ball in the spots where they want to win the ball, and they can't get a hold of that tempo, at least on the defensive side. To me, I know I'm supposed to be talking about LAFC, but to me, (laughs) I think Galaxy were in charge of it, and I think a lot of it had to do with um, David Bingham. Can we call him a playmaker? Sure. In this game, he was. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I said, because he was Saturday. That's that's what I said. I felt like he was a playmaker for their team because he bypassed that first line of pressure time and time and time again. So LAFC couldn't control the tempo. It, it's hard to separate two halves of a game. So let's just go ahead and combine them all the way. Let's just have this okay, conversation sorry. about both teams. No, <laughs> no, you're fine. It's It's very difficult to do because it's all connected. It's mm-hmm. almost impossible to separate one team's actions from the other because that's soccer. The yeah. other coach in this game, Guillermo Baroschelotto, said after the game, I love this quote, Today was a wonderful game because we had two goals, they didn't have any clear chances, and we could have gotten the third goal. I, I love it because it, it sums up the game from the Galaxy standpoint. Bob Bradley, after the game, succinct, we were terrible. Baroschelotto, today was a wonderful game. And it was for the Galaxy. Yeah. And a lot of that offensively started with David Bingham playing balls out from goal and finding space in behind LAFC's fullbacks. Mm-hmm. Especially Diego Palacios in open play, the Galaxy bombed passes into his area and sent passes over and over again into that space on the first goal. I think this leads to the corner kick where there's no yeah. you know, marking at all. The first goal, the lead up to that corner kick, a ball goes in behind that space. And honestly, I can't remember if it was David Bingham or not, but the overall tactic is still visible there. The pass goes over his head. He can't win the ball. It just sort of bounces along there and the Galaxy get the ball, win a corner kick and then have that first goal from Ethan Zubak. So, that tactic of playing into the space behind those those wide areas, behind those fullbacks who like to push forward when LAFC can high press and when they can control the tempo, when LAFC aren't doing those things, those gaps are wide open. Yeah, which so since they since they always sit in that 
posture of like, we want a high press. So we're going to tempt you to try to play out of the back. And most teams fall into that temptation, right? Because there's pride in playing out of the back. And LA Galaxy was like, we're good. We don't want to do it. (laughs) Like, we don't care. We don't have pride. We want to win soccer. The soccer game. Like, we want to win. And I think it was really, I actually think it was really smart of them. And one of the things that I was laughing at after they scored that first goal, Joe, is like, how many times have we said, like, stop crossing the ball? And they score off a cross with a head finish. (laughs) (laughs) The crosses, though, you're right. You're right. You're so right. I I would argue, and this is to use another Angelism, I would argue that the crosses were much more like passes in this game. Well, first of all, they were fewer and further between. Absolutely. There were Absolutely. nine. Nine crosses for the Galaxy in this game, which is a third, or, or even a little less than a third, of what we've seen from previous matches from the Galaxy in the attack. I'm glad you said that stat, because I meant to, in my brain, I was like, check that stat. How many crosses did they have? Because I wanted to compare that. There was games where we were saying there was 35 crosses. Yeah, yeah. It's too high. That number is too high. Nine is acceptable. That's in a range where I feel comfortable. And you look at the the way that they cross the ball, specifically on the two goals. Because they go because they both came from from movements out wide, moving the ball into the box from a, a mm-hmm. wide or at least a half space area. Yeah. They're both balls from Julian Araujo. And they're they're timely crosses. They're they're patient crosses, they're accurate crosses that are specifically intended for a player in the box. The first one is Ethan Zubak, who Araujo spots after a little bit of buildup on a short corner on the right side, the far side of the field. The second goal, it's Rajo again finding Sebastian Legette, who's unmarked because Latif Blessing, who's playing right back for LAFC at the time, doesn't track him. Again, another instance of the Galaxy moving into space behind those fullbacks. Rajo spots Blessing and plays the ball to... Oh, excuse me. Rajo spots Sebastian Legette and plays the ball to Legette. He doesn't play it to, mm-hmm. to the box and hope that it finds Legette. He passes the ball to Legette. And I think that's so much of an improvement for the Galaxy. It really is. The second goal reminded me of a goal we saw earlier in the season to what that LAFC conceded where Blessing was half a second behind as well, right? And it's the same thing here. His decision-making... In those moments where goals are scored, right, you can see decision-making of players who aren't typically defenders, right? He's just not a defender. So instead of first making the run into the space and winning the space before... um thinking about what's next going forward it was almost as if blessing gets caught like okay we might win this ball oh crap now i gotta get back and and i it was one of their first games it was the first game of mls is back i want to say and blessing got caught Hmm. same kind of thing where he's just behind the player trying to chase them chase them to that spot where he ends up losing it so um just interesting how those goals turned out for la galaxy but joe for for you we we've we talked about what went right for LA Galaxy, but, and I spoke about what I didn't think went right for LAFC. For you, what, what did you see that wasn't quite in the right LAFC vibe? We've touched on it already, and maybe we've talked about it more than I think, but it bears more discussion. Defensively, they've had the problem that continues to plague them over the course of the season and in, in past games as well. The problem is that they just really don't defend when the ball's in their half of the field. There's too much standing. There's not enough active marking. There's not even on a zonal marking, you know, corner kick, which is where the first goal came from. There's not enough active defending. They're they're waiting around for something to happen. They're watching the ball. I think back all the way to the Philadelphia Union game, that 3-3 draw from before all of the 
the break and the, the MLS's back turn and all of those things. In that game, they just let in goals that never needed to happen. That could have been avoided with a step, with a few players stepping and pressuring the ball and marking off the ball. And we continue to not see that from LAFC. So for me, that's the transition of, okay, you, you beat our high press, right? We haven't won the ball through our press, either initially higher up the field or through a team clearing the ball and us winning the first and second balls. So who are we in those moments as LAFC? Who are we in those moments where then we try to retreat and get back into positions and then actually defend, right? And, and what might be, what might look like a little bit of a lower block. I think it's, I think it's a cursing and a bless, a blessing for them, right? Because they have this tenacity about how they're going to attack, but they also have to look at how they're going to defend, especially when they get broken down. So I thought, I thought that was, Interesting that you brought that up because there was just something lacking and um, not only defensively, but an attack in the first half, Joe, which I was surprised. I know it was hot, um, but it's the summer. Games are hot in the summer. That's just like that's the reality of it. Right. And yep. I, I know we can talk about the heat and I know it was mentioned on the broadcast, but I don't think I have ever seen LAFC with the ball and the number of players that were standing, hmm. which was so interesting. Usually they have the ball and what makes them so dynamic is their movement off the ball. It, it's as if one person goes and it's just this like domino effect of like, I run here, then that person runs here. And they're just all over the place, crossing lines vertically and horizontally on the field to make it super hard on the opposing team. And they, they weren't doing that for periods of the game. They weren't aggressive off the ball, and they were sluggish on the ball. In possession, I mean, the number of times where it was a couple touches too many all over the field, regardless of which player had the ball. And that actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, might be a byproduct of what you just said. Yes. The runs aren't there. Yes. Then you're taking too long on the ball, waiting for them to be there. And when they're not mm-hmm. there, then you take another touch and another one, and you look for an option maybe laterally or backwards, which is fine if there's the appropriate off-ball movement and runs in behind the back line or higher up the field between the lines to accompany those lateral and backwards passes. We didn't see much of that at all from LAFC in this game. One other positive from the Galaxy, Joe, is they switched up the back line. And you and I spoke just about Gonzalez and his lack of tenacity, really, in the back line. And you can't have that as a center back. You have to be tenacious in the way that you tackle, in the way that you communicate, in the way that you organize your back line. And they made a change. They bring in Nick Depew, and I thought that he did a good job of just being steady, right? You did, he didn't have to do anything great. He just had to be a, a good center back who did the little things right, and I, I think he did a good job. All right. That is praise for the Galaxy, a little critique for LAFC. On to our next discussion point. That is Atlanta United's 2-0 win over Nashville SC. Their first game under interim head coach Stephen Glass. I want to dig into what we noticed from this Atlanta United team under a new coach and some of the mentality shift that we saw in this game as well. Ooh, I think that is true. Okay, you you hit us with, with what you're thinking. Okay, so I, I think the most important thing for Atlanta United in this game is not their tactics, although we are going to talk about those because that's what we do, but is instead their demeanor. Now, Pitti Martinez said after the game, you saw a different Atlanta United tonight. We had a different attitude. We showed character and were very happy. That change hmm. 
is so important. You need guys who are happy and enjoying playing soccer to play the style that we have come to associate with Atlanta United. Frank DeBora is no longer coaching this team. He is gone. A lot of the things that he tried to do were good. A lot of the things that he tried to do were maybe just things that the players weren't interested in or willing to do or, or certainly not willing to do with the sort of lovely attitude that, I mean, I'm not I'm not Atlanta United's parent here, but I think it's important to note the difference in, in Demeter and how they enjoyed getting out and playing soccer under a new coach. One of the things that, I noticed in working with the Rapids is sometimes you can instill a structure. And this was um, what I noticed under other head coaches with the Colorado Rapids is you can instill a structure and sometimes it's too much, right? It's too structured that there's no freedom in the way that players can express themselves. And that might be what you're talking about a little bit there, right? Like Frank DeBoer had a style of play that he wanted to play no matter what. And it's good and it can lead to good things. But if there is no room in that for players to feel like this is their opportunity to be creative and also to Darlington Nagby the game, right? Feel it (laughs) out a little bit. Then it's going to be hard to get players to buy in. And so you saying that quote from Pitti Martinez, I think living in a little bit of that freedom right now, they're enjoying it. 100%. Just changing a head coach is oftentimes, I feel like the easiest thing to do to spark immediate change. You you send Frank DeBoer out the door and you bring in the interim coach coming up from Atlanta United 2 and Stephen Glass. That can change a lot. Even, even if the tactics are similar, even if they're doing things they've done in the past, just the the mentality shift that can come with you know sending the coach that people didn't really like playing for out the door and bringing in fresh blood even from the organization still fresh blood that can have a big impact. Okay. Yeah. Tactically, let's get into tactics. I want to talk about what we observed from them in the very 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 early stages under Stephen Glass. So again, grain of salt here. Offensively, they played with a four three three, sometimes a four two three one, just with midfield rotations, but it was a four three three with Pitti Martinez on the left side of the front three with freedom to come inside and find the game in the half space or even rotating in as a full-on central midfielder at times throughout the game. So that's offensively as a quick survey. Defensively, it's a 4-1-4-1. They played in a mid to high block when possible, and then when Nashville got the ball higher up the field for their attacking play, Atlanta would drop a little bit deeper. So that's the basic structure of what they were doing with and without the ball. Okay. I like that, and I I feel... From just what I saw and hearing you talk about it as well is there, I like that position for Pitti Martinez, regardless of what we know of ha- what happened in this game, right? Is the freedom to tuck inside and become a central midfielder, but also if there's space out wide, expose the space by dribbling centrally or creating uh, isolations. Yeah, I mean, his ability to impact the game from varied positions on the left side is great. He mm-hmm. almost had, it was almost like Atlanta's left side, which was George Bellow as left back, Emerson Hyman most of the time as that left-sided central midfielder, and Pitti Martinez. It was like those two players, Bellow and Hyman, read Martinez's movement. And when he drifted inside, Bellow would make a run outside, and, and Hyman would combine a little bit with Pitti Martinez. And when Martinez was outside... Heinemann would go and run up in the channel next to him. I mean, they had that flexibility that you expect to see from a well-drilled team, but it all revolved around Pitti Martinez while at the same time not really forcing him to dominate the ball and have too many touches when he didn't need to. So I think that balance was really solid in this one. Just a quick point on that, which I think 
if you have a big time player, you want to give them the responsibility of being that player without putting all of the responsibility on them, right? And it felt like sometimes Pitti Martinez this season has felt like he can't get out from under the weight of who he is supposed to be. And by saying, okay, these players are going to play off of you and they're going to watch your movement and you're really going to initiate, but you don't have to do all the work because you're saying if he comes inside, then Bello can go f- go forward or vice versa, right? They can have a little bit of uh, combination play there. I think it allows players to play a little bit more Again, I'm going to use the word free, but uh, a little bit more in their zone. We said it earlier in the the talk about Nashville. Atlanta generated just 0.55 expected goals in this game. And that's important to note because Mm -hmm. that stat does, to my eye, accurately reflect the difference between when Atlanta United had the ball between the boxes and when Atlanta United had the ball high up the field in the final third. There wasn't a lot of of what we almost see from LAFC at times. We didn't see it this week against the Galaxy, but there wasn't a lot of direct, aggressive off-ball movement to move defenders out of the way. Adam John did some good things as that number nine, shifting defenders when Pitti Martinez had the ball in the box on the first goal. But it was a little reliant on crosses. It was not super aggressive and, and timely. That's something to watch for if Atlanta United are going to be stuck playing with the ball in possession going forward. One of the things that makes me think of is... In watching Atlanta United over their seasons of being in MLS is they're not a team who just like sits in the attacking third and creates, right? They try to move into the attacking third as quickly as possible to disrupt the defense with sharp movements by breaking the back line and then opening up a space, right? It's not as if when they get into that space and they are in the attacking third and they're sitting there for a little bit while, a little bit of time, that's a really hard place to be as a team, right? Because there's so many defensive numbers back. It's hard for you to pull players out of position, you know, something that we see a lot when teams play in a lower block. And so it doesn't surprise me that Atlanta gets into that spot and they're not, they don't feel super fluid or successful because that's not who they've been for a long time. Mm -hmm. And both of their goals in this game come from transition moments. They come playing downhill, getting the ball forward aggressively on the dribble into space behind or or in front of Nashville's recovering back line. That's where these goals come from. You can still see that DNA a little bit. Even though Pitti Martinez wasn't around for the genesis of that downhill, insane Tata Martino kind of soccer, there are still slivers of it. Maybe I'm romanticizing it a little bit. Maybe that is really gone and it's just new transition moments under under Glass or under Frank de Boer when we saw that before. But the the core of a lot of these players, even though a lot of them are new to this team, they seem to be comfortable still, maybe comfortable most when playing downhill instead of in a little bit of a slower build-up possession style. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Okay, Jordan, one tactical tidbit each. Let's go for one okay. each. We'll keep one. it short. A couple minutes on whoever you decide and whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Um, oh my goodness. All the pressure is on me. I have three different games. How would I give <laughs> you the games and you can tell me which one you want from? Fantastic. Okay. I've got something from New York City FC versus New York Red Bulls. That was a one nothing victory for the Red Bulls. I have something from Colorado Rapids, four to one loss against RSL. And then I have something from the Portland Seattle game last night. Let's hear the Rapids RSL tactical tidbit. Okay. So 
I, um, in the first half, the way that the Rapids set up was uh, 4-2-3-1, and they brought in Danny Wilson as their left center back. I know what you're thinking, Joe. The last time we saw Danny Wilson, we talked about it on the show <laughs> because it was a tough moment for him. But here's why they brought Danny Wilson in, I thought. Danny Wilson has a superb left foot. And one of the things that he can do with his left foot is he can open up a team with a diagonal ball. So when in the first half, I was watching how the Rapids were attacking. And when they were in a 4-2-3-1, they would drop a, a, a holding midfielder in between the two center backs of Abubakar and Wilson. And they were really trying to play out through Wilson's side, through his left foot. So what that did is Wilson steps up the field a little bit more. In front of him is now the outside back in Sam Vines. And then further up the field is Jonathan Lewis. Lewis at times was tucking inside to almost be another target forward for Wilson to ping the ball through the lines to play him up higher on the field and to bypass as many defensive lines as possible. But most of the time, he was dragging himself wide and high, right? To say, okay, if you play the ball over the top, I can win this foot race. What that allowed Sam Vines to do, the outside backs, is to shift inside. And what I thought was interesting is we've talked about this with Sam Vines before, right? And I think we haven't seen what you and I have expected from the Rapids in the first since MLS is back started. But when Sam Vines comes inside, he really can play as an additional central midfielder. So when he comes inside, okay, Danny Wilson can connect with him there, which he did. But also it gives Wilson the ability to play that diagonal ball across the field. Now get this, because Vines is inside as a midfielder, it allows the other two midfielders really in that double pivot to shift a little bit towards the right side. To say, okay, if you play that diagonal, then we can go support that quicker because we've already shifted because of Sam Vine's movement. I thought that was really smart and um, some good movement from Colorado in the first half. The building blocks are there for the Rapids. And this is a 4-1 loss as you led with to RSL, who you can never count out. And that's becoming apparently clear. Their ability to win the ball in a block, do some interesting things in possession and then have Krylak slap a ball in from, you know, three yards outside the top of the box is absurd. Can um, Krylak just be the like poster child for late timed runs at the top of the box <laughs> because he's the best right then. I I think that is his bread and butter, right? Holding his run, meeting the ball at the top of the box. That late arriving run is really hard to stop and Kralik does it so well. RSL are a pain to play against and that's exactly what Freddie Juarez wants. Mm-hmm. For the Rapids, the pieces are there. We've talked about Yunus Namle coming in as an attacking midfielder, although he's played a lot on the wing for Robin Frazier, Sam Vines, a left back that we both really like. Some interesting off-ball rotations, players getting behind the back line. It hasn't come together yet from the Rapids, but we're early days still, and we're going to see them develop and get more cohesion moving forward under Robin Frazier. So I'm, I'm excited you, to see that. I love how you said early days. I've been watching way too much Love Island, and they say early <laughs> days all the time, and so that just made me laugh. Thanks for that, Joe. <laughs> You're welcome. Unintentional um, Love Island reference. Right? Okay, so that was my little one tactical tidbit out of the games that I, I had. How about you? What do you want to shoot us with? I want to mention Gianluca Busio as a number six in their game against Minnesota United. Is this the Gianluca Busio that we have been waiting for? Kind, kind of, maybe. I don't know. He played a number six instead of a number eight. Or for the U.S. U-17s, he's played as a nine, as a second forward on both wings, or at least on the left wing. He's played 
all forward in the attack. He's played every spot. And now, to my knowledge, this is the first time we see him dropped into a central defensive midfield role, picking up possession in front of the back line, spraying passes and moving the ball forward aggressively into space. He was good at that spot. His passes were decisive. They were forward. They were aggressive. They were largely accurate. Defensively, he was willing to step forward and win the ball off of an opposing number 10. Busio's performance as a number six stepping in for Ilya makes me wonder if this is the spot that he's best at. My first thought in this is when you are a young player and you're trying to figure out who you are, well, you take a little bit of uh, the elements of the game out of out of it when you move farther back on the field, right? Because then the majority of what you you see is in front of you. And so you can play everything that's in front of you. If you change from a, a six to an eight, well, the play is all around you. And to be able to make the right decisions when people are coming from all different directions, we mentioned it with Ferreira off the top of the the, the um, episode here. It's so difficult. I remember that transition personally. And you are just like, you sometimes feel like you're trying to keep your head above water because you don't know where the pressure is coming from next. It's showing you Busio is a very good passer. He's a good decision maker and it simplifies his game. You don't have to be. I, I was thinking about this watching the games and um, especially the game last night of how I think sometimes players feel like they have to be these creative types. Well, you don't. Teams are not built on all like these beautiful piano players, right? That do everything um to that is like beautiful to watch there's people that have to carry the piano and and be the <laughs> you know like they have to move the hard stuff and do the hard work and a lot of the time that's not going to get the credit but it's a function of a team that then allows the people who do the beautiful things to do them more often and so maybe that's Busio. maybe he just needs to change from like this water carrier to like change for more like to like more of a water carrier right like doing the hard work i i think alan Polito is playing the piano i think busio is is moving the piano he's is that the he's, is that the saying it's great i i had not heard it before <laughs> but i love it and i think it perfectly describes what sporting kansas city need from busio and how it can accentuate what alan Polito does dropping in yeah as a pseudo number 10 at times or maybe he's a pseudo number nine i don't know as a 9.5, dropping in, having Busio and the other central midfielders play the ball to him, the center backs play the ball, brick lines to him, and then have the number eight on the left side or one of the wingers run in behind the back line. It's something to watch for. And seeing mm-hmm. how Busio continues to potentially get minutes, stepping in as an occasional number six, seeing how that allows his game to be simplified and have him impact the game for Sporting Kansas City. Those are all things to keep an eye on. And hopefully, listeners, I'm going to be doing that, and maybe you you will too as you watch Busio going forward. Yeah. I liked this episode, Joe. This was fun to get back into a different format and uh, talk some little tactical tidbits, but to dig in as well. Absolutely. Jordan, this was tons of fun. Great to talk soccer. I missed this a little bit. I know, it was, me too. It was nice to have the break. The post-MLS is back. Pre-MLS is still back break in that little <laughs> weekend change that we had there. But it's good to watch soccer. It's good to talk soccer. And it's good to chat with you. Yeah, it's been fun. We'll see you guys all next week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.